Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, fear mongers. On Sunday morning, a day after Donald Trump suggested that people inject themselves with disinfectant, Lewis and I spoke with Ben Rhodes. Now, if you don't know Ben Rhodes, he is the former Deputy National Security Advisor for Barack Obama. He's also the co-host of Crooked Media's Pod Save the World. He's also an author. Uh, He's basically responsible for some of the biggest... Uh, events in foreign policy during the Obama administration. And he gave us a wonderful interview. Uh, He's one of the smartest guys in foreign policy, politics and climate change, and it was a real privilege for us to spend time with his big brain. Now, towards the end of our chat, he really lays into Tony Abbott. (laughs) Uh, I think you'll like that bit, but also Donald Trump as well. Now, if you are depressed about the state of the world, listen to this one, because when you listen to Ben, you realise there are good Americans waiting in the wings to take their country back, and they're ready to lead again, and they're ready to make change for the better for our world. Now, if you want to watch this chat, you can simply go to Patreon forward slash Irrational Fear, join up, only costs a few bucks a month, and you can watch the video of our chat with Ben, uh, which we did on Sunday morning. Uh, I recorded my end of the show on the land of the Gadigal in the Yorin Nation. Let's start the show. Irrational Fear contains naughty words like Brexit, Canberra, Fair Dickum, and Section 44. Irrational Fear recommends listening by immature audiences. Ben, thank you so much for joining us on Irrational Fear. Good to be here, Dan. You know where I'd rather be. <laughs> uh, other than talking to people all around the world from your... Uh, other, uh, do you have a, do you have uh, a other, podcast den, I assume? You have a podcast den? I, I do. I, I'm, uh, I have to uh, build like a pillow fort uh, um, to tape. I'm actually doing a different podcast now too that requires better audio, they tell me. So I have to surround myself with pillows and comforters, but I'm, I'm not doing that for you, Dan. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I, you know, I'd rather see your face. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, ben, I know you're writing a, a book on authoritarianism right now. So kind of while the whole world is in enforced lockdown, I thought there's never been a better time to talk about the abuse yeah. of power and erosion of democratic norms. Lots of fun. Yeah, it's a great topic. Now, in this chat, I think we'll cover quite a bit of territory in the half an hour we've got with you. The risk that COVID-19 poses to democracy around the world, how people in robust liberal democracies can not only protect their institutions, but also support those around the world who live under more authoritarian regimes, and how the USA can overcome its federal leadership vacuum. So these are big, big topics, big topics, you know, you're, but you've got a big brain and that's why that's why you're here. That's why you do what you do. I'll try. I'll see. We'll see what your listeners think. Now, the first question is, when it comes to choosing a disinfectant to inject, what do you prefer, uh, bleach or Dettol? Well, you know, the United States has tried for a very long time to, uh, best we can, set a good example for the rest of the world. And and now I think we, you know, chart a new territory with this innovative uh, treatment of <laughs> inhaling deadly uh, disinfectants. Um, you know, I'm a Lysol wipes person myself. Um <laughs> Wipes are harder because you have to chew, but uh, suffice to say for all your listeners, don't take this as seriously as some of Donald Trump's followers. What well, you're trying to, I believe what you're trying to say is you're being sarcastic. Yes, exactly, exactly. As he uh, now tells us he was. That's uh, right, yeah. Um, well, you know, we've seen countries around the world like Poland and Hungary effectively kind of dismantle democratic processes under the guise of coronavirus and emergency powers. Do you think that this is start of a trend for other states who are eyeing off, you know, Orban and, and Poland? Yeah. I mean, you mentioned this book I'm working on. Part of the point of that book is that all these people for the last decade or more have been learning from one another, uh, Victor Orban, Donald Trump, Modi in India, Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, Xi Jinping in China, Putin, of course. Um, so they already kind of learn from one another. And it's not unusual that in a crisis, uh, an authoritarian leader might take take more power for themselves. Um, and as usual, Orban's kind of been at the vanguard of this, the Hungarian prime minister, uh, for the last decade. And he was among the first to essentially grant himself dictatorial powers uh, early in this crisis. Um, and we're seeing some people follow suit in Poland. Uh, you know, Modi's um, you know, certainly acted in dictatorial ways recently to begin with, and, and that could be expanding now. The Chinese even um, in Hong Kong in the last couple of weeks have been cracking down, arresting protesters. So I think, you know, unfortunately we should anticipate in the next, you know, few weeks and months, a movement by some of these leaders to, to take and hold even more power than they already have. With Hong Kong, it's certainly something we've been because it happens in Asia, which is kind of our neck of yep. the woods, we kind of pay attention to Hong Kong quite a lot. And the pro-democracy pro protests there over last year were quite shocking, sending ripples through Australian media anyway. Very amazing amazing photos and pictures through Australian media. So we're really paying attention to it. How is that kind of movement going now under coronavirus and how are people still managing to protest? Well, you know, they, they were continuing to protest physically for as long as they could. I followed this closely. Uh, I went to Hong Kong in December and met with a lot of protesters. I've, I've stayed in touch with some of them. But right now, frankly, it's hard. I, I think if you talk to them, one of the things that they are hoping will sustain this movement they've built is one of the innovative things that they've done is there's an entire culture around this movement. So it's not just street protest. It's songs. It's memes. It's artwork. Um, it's a kind of virtual community. It's kind of endless telegram threads. 
So uh, I think their hope is that the oxygen of this culture will sustain them. Uh, there's important legislative elections in Hong Kong later this year in the fall that I know has been a focus of the movement for some time. And this will be a test, Dan. But one thing I'd say to people, you know, we start on the kind of pessimistic note of what these leaders are doing in some places, including in Hong Kong. You know, the reality, too, is there's going to be massive economic fallout from this um, and it's going to blow back. Uh, <laughs> so while the first phase of this coronavirus reality politically might be more power for the authoritarian authoritarians, I think the second phase, when we get six months to a year out, may be that pendulum swinging back hard against some of these folks who are in power. And, and, and that may happen in Hong Kong when people can get back out on the street. There may be a pent up nature to what we see happen. Who do you think is doing it better in terms of handling the crisis? Liberal democracies or authoritarian regimes? This is kind of like a hot yeah. or not question. Uh, it seems to be yeah. a kind of a mix, like I, particularly when you're looking at Bolsonaro and Trump and these folks who have authoritarian tendencies just don't seem to think COVID is a real deal. Yeah, no, well, we've been, uh, you know, the baseline for what not to do in the United States. But, <laughs> you know, the funny thing is when you look at it, it's really, it doesn't split the, on democratic and authoritarian lines. Um, you know, people have been trying to make that kind of judgment. The reality is it splits on whether or not the government is competent or not. <laughs> and, you know, South Korea and Germany um, are democratic countries uh, with longstanding democratic norms and institutions. And they've handled this quite well, uh, as unsurprisingly so have a lot of the Scandinavian countries, not Sweden, uh, but the rest of them. Um, whereas, you know, other democracies, the United States, Brazil, that you mentioned, I think the United Kingdom have not handled it uh, particularly well. Um, and similarly with authoritarian countries, you know, China really mishandled it out of the gate, um, in part because of their authoritarian nature, which led to people not reporting the truth up the chain, led the people at the top uh, to not want to come clean, and, and precious time was missed at the beginning. Then you saw a very you know, I think effective response uh, once they got their act together. So, it, you know, it, it's it's mixed. And, and I think what, what that tells you is it's not in this type of crisis. It's not necessarily um, always going to be determined by the system. You, you need, if you're a democracy, you need to elect competent people <laughs> as well as having a democracy. But let's not, let's not beat around the bush. There are some very competent authoritarian regimes out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, well, there's, you know, Singapore, right, is, is always kind of the, the gold standard for uh, competent, uh, at least semi-authoritarian regimes. And yeah, they've been quite effective, although they've had some challenges recently. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I think, look, the problems in the United States, uh, you know, have to do with the fact that we have a, a one major political party that's gone kind of nuts uh, over the course of the last decade. And Donald Trump is the the, the the reaction to that, um, yeah. or the, the result, the end result of that, uh, and that's you know that that's what explains our response. And when when you were in the driver's seat under Obama, how tempting is it to you know throw out a few rights in order to get your policies enacted? <laughs> when you're when yeah, you're in that I mean it's a good question. Um, <laughs> you know what was interesting about that, Dan, is that uh, we inherited a lot of um, policies that in you know uh, I think went pretty far in terms of trading away certain rights for counterterrorism purposes. Um, Patriot Act. And Patriot Act, surve Homeland mass surveillance Security. in particular, the stuff that came out in the Snowden revelations, this kind of massive post-9-11 infrastructure. And, and we ended up spending a lot of time kind of 
trying to figure out how much of that to keep versus how much of that to try to scale back in terms of government power. You know, what's frustrating, you know, we had a pandemic or we had a, an outbreak, at least with Ebola, that, that didn't become a pandemic. The, the, the key to that response, which went quite well, you know, didn't really have to do with taking away people's rights at all. I think in this one, the most interesting questions have to do with what happens when societies kind of resume economic activity and do you start using technology like South Korea and Taiwan have been using technology to track who's sick and who's not and maybe even to, to take people's temperature, that kind of thing. And, you know, that that makes a lot of sense in terms of tracking um, and a disease, you know, whether you want the government to know where you are at all times and what your health is, is a different thing. So my, my hope is if that those kinds of powers are taken um, by governments, that they're, they're temporary, that they're, it, it, it's, it's made clear at the outset that this is a temporary measure put in place just for this emergency. Yeah, when I first uh, emailed you about doing this, we were looking at um, kind of un... Uh, we're looking at kind of a power structure in Australia where, which wouldn't have any checks and balances for this this crisis. So I was like, far out, got to get on the phone to bed yeah, and see yeah, what he thinks yeah. about this. But but since then, there is a Senate Oversight Committee to our uh, national corona um, response, which is which is good, which is kind of standard in this country. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, I mean, but I think that's the key thing is just to make sure somebody's looking over somebody's shoulder at all times. It's kind of interesting, like Parliament for Australia anyway is kind of uh, is out of school until August 1st. In the meantime, there's this national COVID-19 commission that's been formed to manage a crisis made up of a board whose experience is pretty much based around minerals, mining, <laughs> energy. There's one guy who is like the chair of the CSIRO, but I wouldn't call him a doctor because he's not a doctor. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so what does that say about Australia as a nation that they're that the national kind of uh, board that's kind of responding to this while parliament is not in session. Well, you know, it's <laughs> kind of looks yeah, like that. You know, what's funny about that is, is you learn kind of who is the actual power structure in your country when the bottom falls out in a way, you know? Um, so what that tells me is like, those are the people who actually have the power in Australia in the same way that in the United States, frankly, when we've had crises, bankers, you know, banks, uh, major corporations um, are often the people who seem to suddenly have, a lot of power to determine what happens. You know, we just, you know, a few weeks ago passed this $2 trillion uh, bill to essentially try to bail out, um, you know, the economy. And first of all, you wonder, where'd we get this $2 trillion from? But then, yeah, I mean, I think the, the impulse of the Republican Party, as with the, the financial crisis in 2008, when, when George Bush was in, in office, the first impulse was to bail out these big corporations and to bail out banks. Uh, and, you know, kind of the Democrats in the House had to be like, hey, what about actual small businesses or um, <laughs> and the workers who've been laid off? Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, so for Australia, it's, it's energy interest, mining interest, right, um, who've kind of been the power behind the strings, uh, certainly in the Conservative Party. Uh, just like in the, in the United States, you know, we find uh, the heads of major corporations and banks are the people who end up seeming to be making these key decisions uh, when we hit these crises. Ben, uh, when sort of Australia is looking at America's handling of this at the moment, it, it like, I mean, doesn't, it looks like a bit of a mess. When America, does America bother looking at Australia? Like we, we spend so much time looking at you. Do you look at, do, does anyone even notice what we're doing? Is it something that's on anyone's mind? 
I mean, you know, here, yeah. I mean, it, it basically, I think the United States looks at, um, you know, what we tend to do is look at a mix of different countries who seem to represent different regions, right? You know, so you always have a few European countries you're looking at, then you always have kind of South Korea and Japan and East Asia, and then you do, you look at Australia and then around Indonesia and India. I, I don't suggest there's like a lot of time spent. It's usually just like, what are the metrics of how many tests people have done and how many cases there are? And is somebody doing any something in particular that seems to be working or not, you know? Um, and, and in that case, I think... I, I think Tom Hanks getting coronavirus <laughs> on, the, on the Gold Coast. Tom Hanks getting coronavirus on the Gold Coast was a really high point for the world looking at Australia's COVID response. Yeah, well, <laughs> if we kill Hanks, we'll, they'll never forgive us. Yeah. I, and then Tom Hanks's attitude to Vegemite was mm. really set the, set the scales. I think we're all wondering just what, what the hell was Tom Hanks doing in Australia in the first place? Like we had no idea, <laughs> you know? I mean, America's treasure, right? Uh, it's great but, publicity you know, the, for the Elvis movie. Well, yeah, then maybe that was the point. But the, you know, the thing is, is like Australia, I think, has not, you know, distinguished itself for either having a particularly exceptional response or a particularly bad response, and so therefore it hasn't gotten the same attention as as a bunch of other countries in the U.S. We well, excel in the middle. That's our strength. Yeah, you excel. You're right in the middle. Which, by the way. I would trade to be in the middle right now. The, 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 the middle looks pretty good from the bottom, so let me just say that. Well, well Ben, you know, you, Lewis did say the U.S. does look like a bit of a mess, so my question is uh, how much of this is Obama's fault? Well, if you listen to Trump, uh, all of it would be. Um, I, I, you know, it, this has been the, the most frustrating time for me, as you can imagine, but, I mean, mainly because – we got this massive scare in 2014 with Ebola. Um, yeah. And, and it, 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 that ended up okay. You know, we had to mobilize the U.S. military, send it to West Africa. We had to send tens of thousands of healthcare workers and lots of supplies there. But we also learned a lot from that. So we, we tried to, having been scared, okay, what does the government need? We need an office in the White House to coordinate this. We, we created an actual playbook. What do you do if there's a pandemic? We, you know, developed these tools so you could develop and produce healthcare equipment if you needed to in an emergency. We had all these international protocols. And what's been so frustrating is all that stuff that was kind of wrapped in a bow and handed off to, to Trump, they clearly just scrapped, um, totally ignored. Mm. And so they went in, you know, if, if they literally just opened a drawer and found, you know, the playbook that we left for the pandemic and done the things <laughs> in that playbook, they would have been producing testing and ventilators and masks and other things throughout February instead of falling so far behind. But but because they have such a disdain for anything Obama did and for government itself, they just completely ignored that, right? And that- Is this because also there isn't, uh, there's so many vacant places in public service in America that are still yet to be kind of filled or people aren't, aren't wanting to take charge yeah. uh, under this administration? Yeah, it's, a bit, it's kind of the price of chaos. You know, like, so we were, um, when when we were in the transition, right, the, the period of time after the election when Obama was still in office, we actually did an exercise, a cabinet level, so the senior most people in the government exercise on what happens if there's a flu, uh, a new kind of flu pandemic. So basically exactly this scenario so that each of the people in these key positions would be able to inhabit the experience of making those initial decisions. And the reality is, even if they were paying attention, which at the time it didn't seem like they really were. Um, <laughs> almost none of those people are there, right? Because Trump goes through these people like one one a year. So the chaos of of, all of that kind of turnover and the kind of disdain for government, which means that lots of these positions go unfilled, 
and the idea that we don't really listen to experts uh, to begin with, you know, we're yeah. we're paying the price for that now. It's kind of the if you have a, a president who who doesn't like his predecessor, who doesn't like science, who doesn't like government experts, and doesn't fill positions, a pandemic is basically the worst possible thing that can happen because that's when you need government, that's when you need experts, that's when you need to learn from your predecessors, and so this is. Of all the things that could hit Trump, this is probably the worst possible one you know, that he was designed for, beyond his expertise in, in uh, disinfectants. And <laughs> uh, you were talking before about the different things that might happen as a response to this, particularly in the authoritarian regimes. But in America, like there is such a, a um, belief in in some parts of America about small government getting rid of government for, for the government, like it's a government position. Do you think now that we're looking at this? wishing that there was a functional government in governments around the world. We all sort of have this desire now for just a functioning bureaucrat at the top. More government. Yeah, just any government that works. Do you think that's going to happen in America at all? Do you think there'll be a wish for that to come back? I mean, uh, certainly among part of America. Uh, Yeah, I mean, there's been this kind of, uh, gosh, 30-year war against government from the from the Republican Party, the right wing of the Republican Party, you know, dating all the way back to Ronald Reagan, really. Uh, small government, you know, uh, one of America's most famous conservative activists famously said he wanted to make government small enough that you could drown it in the bathtub. Kind of not a nice image, of course. Um, but, um, and now I, I really do, you know, I feel like we're seeing kind of the price of that because you know, what, what, what do you mean when you're saying you're cutting government? Well, you're cutting budgets for things like the Centers for Disease Control. You're cutting funding for the National Institute of Health. Uh, you're, you're cutting funding for the things that you need as a backstop in a, in a crisis. Um, I, I think in the, our election, you know, is going to kind of play out on the terms you described in the sense that, look, Joe Biden's not the most charismatic young new face um, <laughs> But what he is, is someone who offers the stability of like, well, this guy knows what government does and he'll hire the smart people. And, you know, there's a theory of elections in the U.S. that we tend to elect the opposite of the person who went before, you know. So you had Bill Clinton followed by George W. Bush, followed by Barack Obama, followed by Donald Trump. So that that does seem to be like people turn to something different. That's a wild, that's a wildly, far, even like, that's a crazy oscillating pendulum. That's just think about it. <laughs> it gonna, makes that me, might snap yeah, over at I, some point. I'm getting whiplash just thinking about it. And but I think by the contrast Biden offers, therefore, is not youth and you know inspiration, um, but it is like okay, just someone who will. Frankly, the, the idea of government just being you know boring <laughs> is appealing now. You know, we let's just get people in there who know what they're doing. Uh, we don't have to think about it every day. Don't we, we don't have to live a psychodrama on Twitter every day. We'll have a president who just hires the right people, makes the key decisions, you know, tries to lower the temperature of the pol- politics and get things done. And, and then finally, the pendulum can swing again and the Republicans will have in 2024 Kanye West. Oh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, because in Australia, we always talk about like the, the pub test for our leaders. Like it's, we always elect someone we want to have a beer at the pub with. And that's pretty much what we did in our last election. And now I think a lot of people are just going, I don't need a person to have a beer with. Not only am I not allowed to go to the pub to have a beer, I just want a nerd who's read the books. 
Yeah, but and I could never figure that out because I I certainly didn't want to have a beer with Tony Abbott, guys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think no one in his party wanted to have a beer with Tony. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm just gonna just gonna put that out there. Uh, um, yeah, no, I, 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 I we have to get beyond the beer thing here too. Not not that uh, I particularly want to have a beer with Donald Trump, but uh, you know sometimes that's not the thing you're looking for in your prime minister. When I was looking for a photo uh, today to kind of put on the web post that we we're talking with you. I, I, I found all these great ones of you behind the uh, behind the White House podium, and I thought, wow, Trump has done so much damage to brand USA and that visual identity. Does it concern you that you have so many photos of you with, on the White House briefing room podium? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's that damage to your band brand. <laughs> I, I gotta tell you, it's so funny to. Um to think back, you know, the first time I had to give a briefing at, in the White House at the, that kind of iconic White House podium, I was really nervous. And actually, I later figured out that I wore different colored socks that day, um, which frankly, <laughs> uh, thankfully escaped notice. Seems but like a was, small problem in it, contrast to the subsequent it, government. It, yeah, that's about as dramatic as it got. <laughs> but I mean, the, it's true of the entire presidency. Like there was such a, you know, I grew up, I watched the West Wing, like the, uh, these places were kind of... You know, we don't have royalty here, unlike you guys. Um, so uh, the 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 White House, the presidency is kind of like this mixture of the, the seat of government, but also like the, you know, the, the seat of the state. And it, one of the most, you know, depressing things has been watching all of those settings kind of be debased and degraded, you know, uh, not just by Trump, but, but by these, you know, kind of mix of grifters and incompetence and, and ideologues around it. And so, yeah, it is kind of jarring. I spent so much time in this, this kind of small spaces and to see, you know, Trump up there talking about, you know, sunlight curing diseases and, and you know, taking disinfectant and all the rest of it. Um, it does feel like it kind of debases the whole institution. And I'm curious if Trump is defeated or if he ever is no longer president, which presumably will happen at some point, whether that kind of reverts back and people once again think about the American presidency that way and think about those settings that way or whether he's kind of permanently done some damage. Is there any part of you that watches um, what the White House does now and thinks, God, I didn't realize you could get away with that. And that's oh, something that oh. you would have, you would have gone, Oh, we should have just done that. We didn't realize we could be assholes. Yes. Um, you know, th- there's two levels to that. I mean, one is, yeah, like I used to, you know, I was in charge of our communications on, on foreign policy and national security. So that meant, you know, I was kind of the final person to look at any statement that went out or obviously a presidential speech. And you would act at the nerves you would feel about what, you know, getting if there was a typo in there, you know, um, oh. I mean, and the- like, Ben, I, I've read your book and you you actually you tr- you managed to tra- uh, translate your anxiety, yeah, yeah, communicate yeah. your anxiety yeah. about writing every little bit of word. I was so nervous reading your book about communications. Like when you were writing speeches and communications, I'm like, fuck, Ben really fucking cares. Shit. Well, you know. And like by contrast, it's like fucking Trump's get up there riffing. Yeah. It's like improv. Yeah, no, that's right. And and so, you know, and look, I mean, I'm glad that we cared and, and, and I think – People cared. What, ben, the world, the world glass is really glad well, that you cared. Well, and I think, I think people cared about what Obama said because they figured that he was very careful about what he said. But it is amazing to look back and think about the the, the, the precise care we took about words, and, and that's obviously totally gone. But there is something I, I will say that, like you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily crediting Trump with this, um, <laughs> but but the you know sometimes I do think you you impose 
kind of limits on, on what you, I mean, in, in the second Obama term, for instance, we started to kind of let it rip a little bit more, you know, the, the opening to Cuba, you know, yeah. the, obviously the Iran nuclear agreement, you know, Paris Accord, things that were seen as politically very risky, we just did them, you know, and you started to realize, you know, on Cuba, for instance, which, which I worked on, the only reason you'd be like, well, why do we have this crazy Cuba policy? And people just say, well, you don't, you don't touch that, you know, that's politically, you know, toxic, you know, and it's like, well, why not? You know, so there is, a, there is something healthy about being willing to break from convention. Um, but, uh, but <laughs> taking it to this extreme, uh, taking it to this extreme is not healthy. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. How, how, how do you have hope at this point uh, for America and for overcoming this federal leadership vacuum, like heading into this election season? I mean, I think that it, it's hard not to be pretty dark about where we are right now. Um, I, 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 I did think, look, you know, obviously um, this is the worst possible way for this to be playing out in terms of the loss of life and the economic damage. And what's happening is, you know, we're, we're seeing the result of electing someone who just shouldn't be president, who just doesn't have any skills required to do that, who kind of represents some of the worst impulses of America in terms of, of hubris and narcissism and belligerence. I, I think my only hope is, you know, as we were talking about earlier, that this is kind of going to wake enough people up to the fact that we got to just get our stuff together. You know, I mean, America's got to... Not only do we have to, to, to elect someone different in this election, but I mean, we, we've got to cut it out here, you know, with the indulgence of this kind of right wing populism that has infected us like a lot of other places with the, the disdain for government and expertise. Um, you know, we are the richest country in the world with the most resources in the world. And we have basically the worst response to this pandemic of anybody in the world. If you just look at the cases um, and the deaths and the spread of this thing, uh, certainly among advanced economies. And so my hope in a way is that, um, as with the whole Trump presidency, that this is waking people up and that this will mobilize people and that people understand that, that government matters, that, that national cohesion matters. Um, and, and that frankly, we, if you indulge conspiracy theory and, and kind of toxic kind of right-wing media, you end up with a guy standing at a podium talking about disinfectants, you know? Is there any kind of sense from people who worked on the Affordable Care Act that they've got a sweet level of schadenfreude right now? Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, that, that's the thing, actually, that, you know, the weird thing about the United States is a lot of the debates, you know, are, are moving from my, my obviously, political perspective, are, are, are moving even further to the left, even while Donald Trump is in office. So the Affordable Care Act that was seen as this kind of radical um, takeover of the healthcare system by government 10 years ago is now seen as this pretty center, centrist, middle-of-the-road uh, plan. And I think that will mean that, you know, if Joe Biden's elected, this, this will grow into even more of a, uh, more of a generous healthcare system than we've, we had before. So, I, I, yeah, I think, I think a lot of things Obama was trying to do, where he got some of it done, not all of it done, um, as difficult as the Trump years are to see him try to take, you know, like an ax to it, I actually am somewhat optimistic that 10... 15 years from now, we'll look back and realize that, okay, all that stuff Obama started ended up getting done. It just had this kind of major detour under Trump. And is there any uh, discussion at all about um, 
what might happen with the elections in the states if people are still in lockdown and like we've been talking about people becoming authoritarian regimes is there any chance he delays the election or puts it off no i he can't really do it um because under our system the states um uh administer elections in congress i think congress would have to support him in putting out the election because it's it's also mandated in federal law that it happened on that particular day uh, so I think the debate in the United States is turning to mail voting, uh, whether people here are going to be able to vote by mail in the election. Mm-hmm. Trump has resisted that because, like, Republicans always resist um, things that allow people to vote in the United <laughs> States. Um, uh, it's, it's actually peculiar to me that they are because, frankly, um, and hopefully they're not listening to this podcast, but the, the secret is that uh, older people tend to vote for Republicans and, and voting by mail might be helpful to them. Um, my view is that everybody in this country should have the option to vote by mail. I don't care whether that means they're more likely to vote Democrat or Republican. And I do think you'll see, I think that's where this will end up. I think, I think you know, the vast majority of states will have, if not universal vote, vote by, by mail, certainly make it much easier for people to request mail-in ballots. And, and we may have an election where there's not nearly as much in-person voting, but a lot more voting in the mail. While, while we wrap up here, I just kind of want to have a quick chat about climate change. It, see, it feels like uh, this crisis is just distracting us all from the biggest crisis possible, uh, particularly for Australians. Like over Christmas, we had these incredible bushfires that ripped through large swathes of the country. Even when uh, we met Ben back in KL, flying out to KL, yeah. looking out the window, seeing for four hours just smoke in over the continent was just incredible. And at that point in time, I think Australians were more conscious of the climate crisis than ever before. What are governments missing at this point in time to be able to pivot towards a climate uh, crisis front uh, heading heading out of this crisis, do you, this current COVID crisis, do you think? What worries me is that we're going to go into this kind of deep recession everywhere. And what is going to be tempting for a lot of countries, particularly the large developing countries like China and India, is when they're trying to jumpstart the economy again, saying, well, let's, let's put aside these plans to shift to renewable energies because it's a lot cheaper to just you know, fire up the coal-fired power, power plants and get energy moving that way. You know? um, and so you could see kind of short-term economic stimulus measures that turn back to coal um, and dirty forms of energy in ways that are, are damaging, obviously, to even the, the minimal ambition of what was in the Paris Accords. You know, because what's necessary, I mean, the, the, what we should learn from this pandemic, right, is what was so frustrating in this country is here's a, this pandemic, is this disease is spreading. The scientists are telling us this is going to happen. If you'd listened to the scientists, you would have done certain things right away. And we didn't do them. And so, therefore, a lot of people are getting killed. And it really is a miniature analogy for climate change. Like the scientists are telling us this is going to happen. We can even see it starting to happen in Australia. And what do you need to do? You really need to wholesale change your entire makeups of your economies. You know, like we, we can't, you know, there's no other way to, to do this, guys. You know, there's no, there's no third option here between transitioning from fossil fuels to different forms of energy. Um, and you can do that in stages and you can do that in ways to cushion the blow for certain industries. But that's what's really going to be required here. And I think, I hope what we've just lived through 
kind of once again tells us that like ignoring scientists or telling you something bad is going to happen is, is ultimately going to cost you a lot more in the long run than than taking action right away. And, and this is the debate, you know, that we had. Uh, well, first we had partners and Kevin Rudd and Julie Gillard, but uh, these are the debates we had certainly with with, with Abbott um, uh, when when Obama was. Off. So tell, I mean, let's go deep on that for a second <laughs> with Abbott. What kind of conversations were you having with him and his his partners? Well, what was so frustrating with that? Look, I mean, it's no secret. Uh, Obama, you know, Tony Abbott was far from his favorite leader to begin with. Um, Ours either, for the record. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, um, uh, what was frustrating with Abbott, you know, is he was kind of very sure of himself without really knowing what he was talking about. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I remember Obama rarely, you know, he actually got on well with the center-right politicians and, you know, Angela Merkel and David Cameron. So it's not like he couldn't work with someone, you know, who was on the right side, uh, you know, the right end of the spectrum, um, not the right side. (laughs) Um, And, um, but I'll tell you the anecdote that really drove this home to me is that, you know, we were, um, you know, we came to Australia, I believe, yes, right after we reached the bilateral agreement with China um, in 2014 that became kind of the basis of the Paris Accord. And we were trying to get Australia to just do some minimal stuff, you know, um, you know, an ambitious, or even not that ambitious, just a target of emissions reduction or some funding for developing countries to develop, uh, you know, clean energy. And Abbott was just kind of tone deaf on this thing. And, and Obama, I remember, gave a speech before the G20 in Brisbane where, you know, we had like a paragraph about climate change. Um, written into the speech. And Obama got to that paragraph and he just went way off the text, you know, and was just basically blasting the Abbott government in ways that he almost never did on foreign soil um, and pointing out the Great Barrier Reef uh, disappearing. And, and that, and, and Abbott was upset, you know, this was like, you know, he was supposed to be this big stage for him hosting the G20. But it's like, well, look, if you want to host the G20, like you got to step up and be an international leader. And we've got everybody else kind of rallying around this effort to get to an ambitious climate agreement the next year in Paris. And Abbott was really one of the last holdouts, um, dragging his feet, you know, and no uh, coincidence, you know, who his key political supporters are. We mentioned people in the mining and energy industries. No coincidence, uh, Rupert Murdoch media in Australia, also very friendly to those industries. And and so it wasn't hard to put that, you know, together. Uh, why that guy was dragging his feet? It, you might, it might surprise you. I don't know if you know this, but probably the thing that sealed the deal for Australians and Abbott was when he was prime minister, and he wants to he wanted to in, instigate. So you know, we talk about uh, all the climate policies, all the retrograde kind of policies are, are around that kind of stuff. But the thing that really uh, turned Australians against Abbott was when he wanted to institute knights and dames, mm. uh, a new award system where he would create an Australian system of knighting people and daming people. And the first knighthood he gave was to Prince Philip. Oh, well, <laughs> I didn't, I did not know that. I will tell you that whenever we were really annoyed with Tony Abbott, we would watch the video of that speech by Julie Gillard. Um, uh, the, the <laughs> <speech? laughs> yeah, we're, we're, uh, that speech got watched a lot uh, in the Obama White House. Uh, let me put it that way. You know when uh, when when all the videos, um, sorry, when all those uh, hand washing videos were coming out at the start, and they were like, "You need to wash your hands for at least twenty seconds," and um, people were giving you like song lyrics, yeah. it was like, "Wash it for the length of Happy Birthday." 
There yeah. are a lot of people who are going, you just need to wash your hands for the length of Julia Gillard's misogyny speech. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All seven minutes of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Ben, thanks for joining us on Irrational Fear. It's a real privilege to have you. Yeah, good talking to you guys. And I, I've got a question. Have you ever thought about joining Cameo? Because some of your uh, predecessors, uh, uh, like Sean Spicer and Anthony Scaramucci, are both on there. Yeah, I, uh, I you know, <laughs> what a surprise that there's a pipeline from the Trump administration to reality television. In the States, you know? <laughs> hey, uh, let's have a listen. Let's have a listen to one of them. Here's Sean Spicer. Hey guys, it's Sean Spicer. This month on Cameo, I'm donating all the proceeds to the Yellow Ribbon Fund. It's an organization that supports our nation's caregivers to the our wounded service members. Uh, so think about that video. Happy birthday, St. Patrick's Day, daylight savings time. Do well in the primaries if you're a presidential candidate. Uh, Lent, that's always a good one. You name it, there's so many good reasons to send a shout out video to the person that you care about. Maybe a complete stranger, someone you want to ask out on a date. It doesn't matter. It's for a great cause. Think about it, consider it. Thanks a lot. I would love a daylight savings dime <laughs> yeah, video from yeah. Ben Rhodes. <laughs> or yeah. dating as well. I think Joe and Spice are someone on a date for you. That's a no. That's a hard no. Yeah, no, that's, uh, you know, uh, there's, Trump used to say this uh, when he was running, you know, we're not sending our best. Um, and and, and I, I, think, I think that's been manifest in, uh, in the appointments he's made. Uh, Sean, how, you know. much do you, how much do you think Sean Spicer costs, Ben? How much would you pay for a 30-second message from Sean Spicer? You know, I, I, I would pay someone to not send me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Haven't you paid enough? Spicer. Yeah, exactly. Well, he's, yeah. Charge, he's charging 160 pounds. So three hundred Australian dollars Whoa. for a message. Yeah, Scaramucci, however, is uh, quite a bit less. He's only forty pounds, but uh, I guess he was in—he uh, was only in office for about three hours. Yeah, so, it's like eleven you know. days. No, no, nobody's. I mean, all these guys are kind of grifters, right? And the, the guys somehow cashed in on eleven days in a in a job. You know? Here's him. Here. Hey, it's the Mooch. I'm super excited to be on Cameo. So you know what? I'll talk about anything, as you guys know. So look me up, dial me in. And tell me what you want me to say to you. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, wow. It's <laughs> yeah. just the people who are too stupid to write a book. Yeah, yeah. put that one in the time capsule. Yeah. <laughs> uh, ben, thank you so much for joining us on Irrational Fear. Hopefully we can catch up with you again in about six months' time so we can uh, chat again. Yeah, hopefully we'll have a different president. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thank, bye. thank you, Ben. Thank you so Take much. Care. Irrational Fear. Disinfectant. It knocks it out in a minute, one minute. This is a rational fear. Well, how great was that? Uh, such a insightful, clever guy and, uh, wow, pretty great. Look, thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, please head to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Apparently that's really helpful. I don't I ever ever read those reviews, but I know lots of lots of people do. So please go and do that. And also if you want to watch the video of that chat or any future chat or watch any of our live streams, just go to patreon.com forward slash irrational fear and give us a few bucks a month and you can see our shows as they record live. A big thank you to Jacob Round who mixed this show and the Obama Foundation for hooking up that conversation. Um, really lucky to have that conversation. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm so pleased to have been able to bring it to you. Um, thanks a lot. And until next week, there's always something to be scared of. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 